So, good morning, LCC. My name is Scott, and I serve on the teaching team uh, for the church, and occasionally they let me talk to you as well, which is what I get to do this morning, so that's really cool. Um, I am coming from my home, as you might guess, which is where a lot of us has been spending our time recently, right? And uh, before I get a lot of uh, texts and emails after this message, I'll just... Uh, tell you that yes, those are castles on the wall behind me. They are um, actually castles in Romania, which is where I lived for five years. Uh, all but one of the pictures, I believe, uh, have, were taken by either myself or my family. So and they, uh, they hold great memories for me, and I love to go to these castles whenever I get a chance. Um, so that's what that is. Um, but I want to get into the message today. I want to do that by first uh, reminding us of a date. It was March 16th just a few weeks ago, when all of our lives were changed beyond imagination. That's when uh, Governor DeWine and Dr. Amy Acton, who's the director of our Department of Health, announced that they were enacting a number of drastic measures trying to curtail the spread of the novel coronavirus. And on that day, I, uh, I and I think not, not many people, um, understood the far, uh, the wide-ranging impact that these uh, restrictions would have on our lives. Um, it's, I don't think, an understatement to say that many, if not most of us, have had big chunks of our lives stripped away uh, pretty quickly. For example, uh, haircuts. Do you see this mess? Does anybody know a hairstylist that I can see? But, <clears throat> you know, it gets a lot more serious than that. Uh, sports and entertainment, for example, were all uh, gone. School, classes that we were enrolled in, all gone. Face-to-face uh, -face relationships with our classmates, with our colleagues, all gone. <clears throat> um, jobs have been lost. Businesses have been shuttered. Relationships have been distanced. And the freedom to go where we want, when we went, want, and with whom we want has all gone away. And yes, some have uh, experienced the ultimate stripping away as they've contracted the virus and not recovered. Now, there's a saying that goes something like this. It says, when a person gets squeezed, that's when you see who they really are. Because that's when what's on the inside comes out. As a society and as individuals, I think we could say that in many ways we're going through a season of squeezing and stripping. <clears throat> Big chunks of our lives have been and are being stripped away. And the question that's raising and being raised for many of us is what comes out when that stripping of our lives happens? We're going to continue our journey through the books of Samuel today. And what we're going to see is that uh, two men, King David and his wayward son Absalom, are both being squeezed in different ways. And the stuff that comes out of them could not be more different. So we want to begin in, for, or in 2 Samuel chapter 15. If you've got a Bible or on your phone or something like that, I encourage you to turn there. We're going to place the scriptures on screen as we read them today as well. So we want to begin reading chap 2 Samuel chapter 15, starting at verse 1 where we read that in the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. 
he would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. And whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? And he would answer, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. And then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, If only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case would, could come to me and I would see that they receive justice. Also, when anyone approached him to bow down to him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice, and so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Let me go to Hebron to fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. And while your servant was living in the Geshur and Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. And the king said to him, Go in peace. And so he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Two hundred men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as guests and went quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor, to come from Gelau, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength, and Absalom's following kept on increasing. A messenger came and told David, The hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. So in 2 Samuel 15, we see uh, Absalom basically pulls off a uh, political, social kind of uh, coup against his dad. And he obviously wants to set himself up as the new king of Israel. Uh, now, a couple of chapters later, we're going to see that Absalom actually then follows his, uh, chases his dad onto the battlefield, pursuing him, one intent on killing him. And so it's not just enough that Absalom takes the throne from his dad. He wants his dad dead. That's some pretty extreme stuff, and it forces us to ask the question, what in the world was motivating Absalom uh, to do all of this stuff against his dad? Well, in his book entitled David, uh, Chuck Swindoll has written about David, uh, Absalom like this. He said, to everyone else, David was king. But to Absalom, David was dad. I wonder how he, Absalom, would describe David if he, being dead, could speak. Now, in many ways, Absalom's story reads like a Shakespearean tragedy. There's a number of things who have been stripped uh, away from his life. Uh, and much of that stripping could be uh, traced back to his dad, King David, and particularly his failures as a father. Now, Pastor Dan introduced us to Absalom last week, and he talked about the brutal attack that happened on Absalom's beloved sister, Tamar. And many have pointed to the fact that David's lack of action on Tamar's behalf um, was a problem. I mean, he basically did nothing, neither as king nor as dad, uh, to his son Amnon, who committed the atrocious attack. There were no consequences that we read about in Scripture. 
And that had to have been incredibly painful to Absalom in light of how much he loved his sister, Tamar. And it almost assuredly laid the groundwork for um, his uh, murder of his brother Amnon a couple of years later. Now, this stripping away continued for Absalom when then he was forced to flee his hometown of Jerusalem uh, to be protected from the consequences of the murder. That in itself was shameful just to be uh, run out of your hometown, especially as the king's son. But that shame then was compounded by David, who for several years left Absalom in in his uh, city of exile, banished from coming back to Jerusalem. And then he finally relented and invited Absalom back to Jerusalem reluctantly. But the shame continued to pile on because he said to Absalom, you cannot see my face if you come back. And so Dan again talked about this last week that David failed to forgive and restore Absalom. And this too almost assuredly laid the groundwork for his takeover of the throne and his pursuing David uh, onto the battlefield and pursuing his life in our chapters today. And so we look at at Absalom and the life that he was leading, and he had plenty of reasons to uh, want to strip everything from his dad, not only the throne, but his life. To everyone else, David was king. To Absalom, David was dad, and a flawed one at that. Again, back to our question, what comes out of us when everything is stripped away? What comes out when we're squeezed by the injustices of life? Here's what came out of Absalom. Uh, First of all, there were, it was bitterness. Um, Bitterness over his sister's rape, bitterness over the lack of consequences upon his brother, bitterness against David for not... um, enacting consequences for taking responsibility for his family, bitterness over being shunned from his hometown, bitterness over continuing to be shunned even when he came back to his hometown. Um, And what he did is he allowed this bitterness to build up over time. Last week, Dan talked about it. it was two years that he spent planning the murder of his brother, Amnon. And if you do the math in chapter 15, It's approximately two years that Absalom spends planning the political coup against his dad. You see, Absalom knew how, he knew the recipe for cooking bitterness. But he also demonstrates a huge sense of shame. Now, uh, maybe you've heard that guilt is feeling bad about what you do. Shame is feeling bad about who you are. And, And Absalom demonstrates a huge sense of shame in these stories. And he allowed that shame to drive him to try to prove himself. He had to prove himself with these acts of power and control. And then finally, he had this system of, or this sense of injustice, which the injustices were real. But what he did is he allowed that sense of injustice to to push him to implement his own system of justice and consequences in people's lives. Now, the consequences of Uh, his father's sin were very real for Absalom. But it's clear as we read through this story that God doesn't excuse his bitterness, doesn't excuse the resulting behaviors. Yes, David should have handled the situation very differently. God's word never whitewashes David's story. 
But Absalom always retained the ability and the responsibility to choose how he was going to respond to the hurts of his father and and the failures of his father. Absalom is held responsible for what comes out of him when the hurts and the injustices of life are squeezing him and stripping those, those important things away. Now, I don't need to ask if uh, you've ever been hurt deeply by the people close to you, by the actions, the inactions of those people around you. You know, being genuinely and deeply hurt by uh, broken people who are in our lives, it's a universal experience. And sometimes these hurts have stripped away from us things that are deeply important, that are close to the core of who we are. And so the question that Absalom's life raises for us is, what have we done with the legitimate hurts that have come into our lives? How have we reacted over time? Not reacted in the moment. That's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about how have we reacted over time to that significant stripping that sometimes happens in our lives. Now you may say, well, um, I've not murdered anyone. Well, that's true. But you see, Absalom's pattern is very common. For example, how often do we use passive-aggressive behavior to express our hidden bitterness um, and desire for revenge against people who have hurt us? How often do we seize power and control over our situations so that we don't get hurt again? How often do we inflict our own systems of justice and consequences upon people uh, who have broken us, who have squeezed us, who have stripped away from us uh, important things in our lives? You see, we don't, we do not, let me be very clear, we do not carry responsibility for the ways that people have hurt us. God holds the perpetrators responsible and he does bring consequences in their lives in his good time. But we carry responsibility for how we react, how we're responding to the wrongs done to us. Absalom was held responsible for his reactions, again, over time. And so are we. Now, I want us to remember our guiding principle today. Um, that when a person gets squeezed, that's when we see who they really are. That's when the inside comes out. Now, David certainly had his shortcomings. Uh, He made some really serious mistakes in his life. But in these later years of his life that we're reading about now, when much of what was important to him, much of what really defined him as a human being is being stripped away, we start again to see his heart. Um, you may remember, I don't know, you may remember a couple of months ago, I spoke about David and I talked about his heart and it was a heart after God's own heart. And in these stories, we start to see that heart come out once again. And so just as we did with Absalom, I want us to uh, make some observations about David during this squeezing and this stripping away of his life. So we're going to read in verse 15 or chapter 15 again, starting at verse 14, where we read that 
then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. And the king's officials answered, Your servants are ready to do whatever our lord the king chooses. The king set out with his entire household following him. But he left ten concubines to take care of the palace. So the king set out with all the people following him, and they halted at the edge of the city. All his men marched past him, along with all the Carathites, Pelethites, and all six hundred Gittites, who had accompanied him from Gath, marched before the king. The king said to Ittai, the Gittite, Why should you come along with us? Go back and stay with King Absalom. You are a foreigner in exile from your homeland. You came only yesterday, and today shall I make you wander about with us when I do not know where I'm going? Go back and take your people with you. May the Lord show you kindness and faithfulness. But Ittai replied to the king, As surely as the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king may be, whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, Go ahead, march on. So Ittai the Gittai marched on with all his men and the families that were with him. And so it begins in verse 14. As he's preparing to escape Jerusalem, we see in David that he's not just concerned about saving his own life. We see him clearly looking out for the good of his officials, for the good of his extended family. And we also see in verse 14 that it's not just friends and family, not just the officials that are close to him. He's also concerned about the city. He says there that he's leaving, running away from Absalom because he doesn't want the city, and I quote, put to the sword. You see, what he's saying there is he doesn't want the innocent citizens of Jerusalem uh, killed. And he also doesn't want the physical city of Jerusalem to be torn down by Absalom in the process of trying to kill David. That would have been a very common uh, process or thing to happen in those days, that one king takes over from another king and absolutely obliterates any memory of the previous king. And then we, this kind of selfless behavior goes on. We see it starting in verse 19, where David pauses his own escape from the city and he takes time to speak to a guy, pretty an unknown guy named Ittai, who wasn't even a Jew. He was a foreigner. He was in exile there from his homeland. And David stops and talks to him and says, hey, I want to take care of you. Go back and stay with Absalom. You'll be safer there. And so we see in David's heart this selflessness coming out. He's looking out for the good of many other people, um, even as things in his own life are being stripped away. So let's continue to read in chapter 15, verse 23, where it says that the whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley and all the people moved on toward the wilderness. Zadok was there too, and all the Levites who were with him were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set down the Ark of God and Abiathar offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, 
He will bring me back and let me see it in his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. Now, the second thing that I see in David's heart, and I want to camp here for a while because it is so important, comes in verses 25 and 26. Zadok was a Levite and a priest, which meant that uh, he cared for the relationship between God and his people. And the hugely important symbol of that relationship was this thing they're referring to in Scripture called the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of God. And I want to show you a picture of what that might have looked like. Now, there's a tons of um, history and symbolism tied up in this uh, Ark of the Covenant, and I will say none of which is related to Harrison Ford or the, lost, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, just so you know. Um, but for the sake of time, I'm simply going to say this about the Ark of the Covenant. Um, for David and for his people, the presence of God was wherever the Ark of God was. Wherever this fancy gold-plated box that carried the most significant artifacts of Jewish history in it, uh, wherever that was, that's where they believed God was physically present with them. This is where they felt closest to God, wherever that Ark of the Covenant was. And so when, Zadok, when David says to Zadok in verse 25, you know, take the Ark of, the, of God back into the city. He is in a very real set way saying this. He's saying, we're not taking God with us because God belongs in Jerusalem with his people, not just with me. You see, David is not presuming upon the presence of God or the favor of God in his life. In fact, David is not entirely sure at this point what God's plan or purpose is for him. He tells uh, Zadok uh, in verses 25 and 26, he says, If, if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it in his dwelling place again. But if, he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. You see, there's so much of David's heart being shown here. Uh, in, in how he feels about God. He is unassuming about God's favor upon him. More than that, he actually seems uncertain about God's future plans for him. I mean, he's, he seems to be asking the questions inside of him. Uh, does God still want me to be king? I don't know. Do I still have the anointing of God on my life? I don't know. Has God chosen someone else to be king of Israel? I don't know, maybe. David seems to be uncertain about all of these questions. And this uncertainty really, I think, expresses his humility before God. Because he's really saying to God, you're in charge. I am not. And then that uncertainty and that humility uh, leads David to uh, a heart of submission where he's saying, God, whatever you decide to do with me, that's good, and I am good with it. Let's continue to read 
in uh, chapter 15, starting in verse 27 then. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Do you understand? Go back into the city with my blessing. Take your son Ahimaaz with you and also Abiathar's son Jonathan. You and Abiathar return with your two sons. I will wait at the fords in the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar took the ark of God back to Jerusalem and stayed there. But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. Now David had been told, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And so David prayed, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. When David arrived at the summit where people used to worship God, Hushai, the archite, was there to meet him. His robe was torn and dust was on his head. David said to him, If you go with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city, say to Absalom, Your majesty, I will be your servant. I was your father's servant in the past, but now I will be your servant. Then you, uh, then you can help me by frustrating Ahithophel's advice. Won't the priest Zadok and Abiathar be with, with you there? Tell them anything you hear in the king's palace. Their two sons, Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, and Jonathan, son of Abiathar, are there with them. Send them to me with anything you hear. So Hushai, David's confidant, arrived at Jerusalem as Abiathar was entering the city. Now there's more things that stand out about David's heart in these verses, and we can't talk about all of them, but I wanted to just mention a couple. One is the weeping. David is weeping in verse 30. David, we see, is emotionally broken because of these things being stripped away from his life. Basically, we're seeing, seeing that David's heart is human, like any of the rest of us. But it's interesting that even in the midst of his emotional pain, even in the midst of his uncertainty and his humility and his submission to God's will, we still see him taking significant actions. For example, in verse 31, he prays. He prays against Ahithophel's counsel to Absalom that it would be frustrated. And then he takes the next step and he actually plants spies in Absalom's political cabinet. He first says to Ahimaaz and Jonathan, go back so that you can bring information back to me. Then he talks to Hushai and says, you go and and entrust yourself uh, to Absalom so that you can find information that will be brought back to me. And then later in chapter 18, uh, we read that uh, David takes charge of his army and makes meticulous battle plans for when Absalom and his armies come. And so we see here that David, even though he's broken and he's humble and he's submitted, he's uh, not laying down. He's not saying, well, I'm helpless and God's just going to do whatever he's going to do. No, uh, that's not true submission. Even in the midst of his uncertainty, even in the midst of his humility, he's taking action. He's doing whatever God uh, presents to him that's there available to him to do at the moment. He's doing the best he can with what he's got left. He's uncertain, he's humble, he's submissive, but he's not laying down 
as a victim. Now, earlier we asked the question, uh, what have we done with the very legitimate hurts of our lives? How have we reacted over time? Remember, not in the moment, but how have we reacted over time to those hurts that have sometimes stripped away from us uh, very important things about who we are? Absalom's response is actually very common, but David's response is very uncommon. How does that happen? It's been my experience that something uh, has to happen deep inside of a person. In order to go where David has gone with God at this point in his life, for us to get to the place that we can be totally uncertain about what God's plan for us and what the future is, and yet we can say to God, you owe me nothing. Whatever you make of my future, it's okay. You see, that's the vision, that's the destination that David sets out for us here. Uh, when his heart is, everything about his heart is stripped away and laid bare, that's the vision, that's the destination that we want to put our eyes on today. When it's all being stripped away, God is okay with us. He's okay with our uncertainty. Why? Because it, it works like this. Our uncertainty with God leads us to humility. And humility leads us to submission. And ultimately, submission leads to worship. Worship is when we say, God, you are good. No matter what I'm experiencing, God, you are good. And so whatever you decide to do or not do with me, I am good with that because you, God, are good. Now, it is not easy to get to this point. As I said, something has to happen deep within us. Usually something painful has to happen deep within us. But I will tell you from experience that God is able to take us there if we'll let him. Now, we're looking at two men in these chapters. There's a son and there's a father. There's Absalom and there's David. And both of them either have had or are having significant chunks of their lives stripped away from them. And we've seen that, that they have vastly different reactions to this stripping away. One of them turned to bitterness, to power grabbing, to uh, his own system of deadly justice. The other one turned to God with uncertainty, with not presuming upon his favor, but rather being humble and be sub being submitted to whatever God decided for him. And the outcome of their lives could not be more different. Let's flip over now to chapter 18. And we're going to skip some verses, but we're going to start at verse 9. Chapter 18, verse 9 where we read, Now Absalom happened to meet David's men. This is on the battlefield. He was riding his mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair, while the mule he was riding kept on going. When one of the men saw what had happened, he told Joab, 
I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. Now skip to verse 14. Joab said, I am not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And ten of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him, and killed him. Then Joab sounded the trumpet and the troops stopped pursuing Israel, for Joab halted them. They took Absalom, threw him in a big pit in the forest, and piled up a large heap of rocks over him. Meanwhile, all the Israelites fled to their homes. During his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself. For he thought, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. He named the pillar after himself, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. And so Absalom ends up uh, hanging in an oak tree by his hair where he is eventually finished off with a javelin through his heart. But that, I mean, that's gory and that's gross, but and that's terrible, a terrible way to die, but that's not the saddest part. The last thing that the Bible says about Absalom is this. He says, During his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar, erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself. For he thought, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. And he named the pillar after himself. And it's called Absalom's Monument to this day. I believe there are a few scriptures that are more sad than this one. The end result of Absalom's life was a piece of rock named after himself, dedicated to himself by himself pretty much totally alone and forgotten. That's his legacy. Now, we may be tempted to think that bitterness is no big deal, that it doesn't matter whether I carry that around or not, and I'm even justified to carry around bitterness. Don't buy that story. Absalom's life shows us exactly where bitterness will take us. It takes us to a legacy of just misery. And eventually you'll be alone because people just can't stand to be around you. We cannot let bitterness simmer. We cannot let bitterness just lay there and not deal with it before the Lord. It's just not good. Now, David's life turned out a bit different. Again, we read in chapter 18, we're going to start at verse 6. This is again when as the battle is going on. And it says that David's army marched out of the city to fight Israel. And the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. There Israel's troops were routed by David's men. And the casualties that day were great, 20,000 men. And then we're not going to have time to read it, but if you move forward to chapter 19, You'll find that David is going to return to Jerusalem. He's going to be restored as the king of Israel. Um, and so through his uncertainty, through his lack of presumption, through his humility, through his submission to God, David wins. He lost in the short term, but David wins the long game. And he's restored. 
Not only that, but David is remembered all throughout history to this day as a man after God's own heart. To me, that seems like a much better legacy than a piece of rock sitting in a, in a valley somewhere dedicated myself, uh, inscribed to myself, defined by myself. So back to our question, what comes out of us when we get squeezed by the injustices of life? What comes, you know, what comes out of us when those precious things of our lives are stripped away? May God continue to change what's on the inside of us, because ultimately that's what comes out when this hard stuff happens in our life. And so that's where we need to change. May God continue to change me. May he continue to change you from the inside out. Let's pray. God, I uh, thank you for this opportunity to share your word. And I thank you for the people um, who are listening to this word today. And I pray, God, that we would not just listen and move on, but that, that we'd be prompted to take our hurts, uh, our injustices, the bitterness that we carry, the shame that we carry, and bring it to you and allow you to deal with it, to heal it, to allow us to forgive, to allow us, uh, where possible, to be restored in broken relationships. Most of all, Father, I pray that you would set people free um, from the hurts, the injustices, from the bitterness, so that we're more free to live for you and to honor you in our lives. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. <laughs> okay, Scott, let me ask you. So if bitterness as a taste tastes bad and gross, what do you think bitterness as a feeling is? Bitterness... It's kind of like a sin. It's kind of like you were like sinning. Okay, how? Um, because bitterness is like a bad, like it's kind of like a taste. Like if you don't like some sort of like cooking or something. Yeah. How it's like that is because like you sin to God sometimes. Not all of us are perfect. Okay. And you do mean to other people. So it's like you're tasting something gross. You're not saying that doesn't taste so good. Okay. Roz, do you have an idea what bitterness is as a feeling? Um, like, um, like when you're sad or like something when, when you don't like when, like people give stuff to you that they don't want you to do, um, mm -hmm. they just like do stuff. Oh, how do you know when you forgive someone who's hurt you? How do you know when you forgive someone who's really hurt you? You say like you probably have some God. Like, to help that person, like, through, like, if they're having, like, a rough time, like, some people hurt each other because mm -hmm. you're just having a rough time. Mm -hmm. Like, you can ask God to help them change, like, their feelings and all of their emotions. Okay. Rosie, how do you know if you've really, if someone really hurts your feelings, and how do you know when you really forgive them? Um, you just, like, say sorry or something, or, like, plead to God that I'm sorry for hurting the people. Okay. All right. Say bye, girls. Bye.
I wanted to have a talk with you and refer to you as, uh, in Romanian we say, Dragime. Uh, in Romanian that means beloved ones, and that's a phrase that uh, that people, sometimes a father, sometimes a pastor, will say to um, really draw people close and uh, because they have something per uh, personal and meaningful to share with them. And so I want to uh, say to you this morning, Dragime. Uh, this is a heart-to-heart -heart chat um, because the story that we've talked about today is not just history on a page. To me, it's personal because I have lived these stories in my own life. So, for example, Absalom. I have seen Absalom in myself. Um, a few years ago, I went through a stripping away of some really significant things in my life. Um, an addiction was exposed publicly, and as a result of that, uh, uh, I lost my marriage uh, to divorce. I lost my career in ministry. Many of you have heard the, this story. Um, and so that was a stripping away. And where I see Absalom in me is that um, there was a lot of bitterness that I held on to in my life for several years um, about the divorce because I didn't want the divorce, um, about losing my career in ministry, about um, God uh, not allowing me to go back to Romania and to Europe uh, to minister. It was a place that I loved. And so I carried around that bitterness for way too long, and it affected relationships. It sometimes caused me to say things uh, that were unkind, that were mean, that were hurtful. Um, so I've been Absalom. I've seen that Absalom uh, tendency in me. But I've also seen uh, the David in me. And what, what I mean by that is I talked about uncertainty. And I have been uncertain for uh, a number of years now, uh, since God removed me from ministry, since God uh, took, that, took me uh, away from marriage and out of marriage, I have been uncertain about uh, knowing, God, uh, what are you going to do with me? Am I going to be single the rest of my life? Am I ever going to be uh, back in full-time ministry? Am I ever going to uh, go back to Europe, go back to Romania to... Uh, serve and love the people there. Um, God, what are you going to do with my giftings? Are you ever going to uh, use me again? For a long time, I thought I was, God put me on the shelf. And then God said, well, I didn't put you on the shelf. I put you on the bench because even the best players have to sit the bench sometime for, for rest and restoration. So I've lived that uncertainty and I've had to get to the point where, and it took a long time, but I, I had to get to the point where I submitted to God and I said, God, uh, you're good and you're in charge and whatever you decide to do with my life, I'm okay with it. And so I became okay with my singleness. I have become okay with not returning to full-time ministry and, you know, whatever the future holds for those two issues, I'm good with it. And whatever God, God decides is, is good with me. And so I wanted to share that personal story so that you uh, maybe can see yourself in these stories as well, that you can see uh, your tendencies to be Absalom. You can see your tendencies 
to be David, or maybe you don't see your tendencies to be David, but it's okay to go there. It's okay to go to the uncertainty and allow that to take you to the humility, to the submission that God desires for us. Tarajime, may this encourage your hearts today. Now in your groups, I want to uh, share uh, three questions uh, that I encourage you to reflect on and then discuss together. The first one is this, uh, what have bitterness and control and injustice look like in your life? Second question is this, how can uh, the consequences of our sin, how can uncertainty about God's future for me, how can that lead me to humility, to submission, and ultimately to worship? And then the third question is this, what do you hope your legacy will be in the eyes of those closest to your life? And how do the uh, stories of Absalom and David shape your thoughts about legacy and what you want your legacy to be? God bless you as you reflect and as you discuss.